there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Summer is over. So grab a mug of your favorite caffeinated beverage and take a chug because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And joining us on the mic is Spencer Bocat Lindell, an associate editor at Axios, a new media company delivering vital, trustworthy news and analysis in the most efficient, illuminating, and shareable ways possible. Spencer, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated? needed and ready to go? Yes, absolutely. I've already had two cups. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. I'm usually a latte person or an iced latte person. And I was too. I'd never heard of the Gibraltar. And so it's, yeah, less, it's less of the like milk part. And okay, got it. Equal amounts of the coffee. And it's delicious. And I had two of those this morning. So I'm fully caffeinated for sure. Yeah, I'll have to work up the courage to order one of those next time I go somewhere. <laughs> Spencer, you are currently an associate editor at Axios and you work with expert voices. Can you take us into the primary functions of your current job and maybe explain first what expert voices are? Yeah, absolutely. So Expert Voices is a program that Axios launched to sort of supplement the daily news cycle with analysis from experts, mostly think tank fellows and professors at some of the sort of major universities in the country, as well as some former administration officials, people have worked for past administrations. And the goal, at least specifically right now, we're focusing largely on on world news is to illuminate larger trends as sort of specific events happen in in different parts of the world to provide some broader context for whatever may be happening. So whether it's the economic crisis in Turkey or the civil war in South Sudan, to have someone who is fully immersed in that particular field to be able to, to speak to it and provide some context that if you are just a journalist and sort of skimming the surface of the issue, you may not be able to provide. And so what do you do as an associate editor? Every day, we have a contributor network of, I want to say about 200 writers, and they can submit, you know, as sort of any freelance writer would, they email us directly. And so normally when I I come in in the morning, I I have a few pitches or fully fleshed out articles to work on. If I don't have anyone writing for me of their own volition, I will, after having checked my daily news briefs and all that and seeing what's going on in the world, I will reach out to, to individual writers who have written for us before, whom I, I, I know to have a, a particular expertise in the issue. Or if there is something that we don't have a, a writer who you know is, is knowledgeable about the field, I will try to find someone and bring them on into the program so we can have a, a piece on that. I would think that for a young editor to have to work on the writings that have been submitted by former deputy secretaries of state, directors of very prestigious environmental law clinics, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations would be a little intimidating. Yeah, it it, it definitely is. I would say the one sort of advantage that I have as an editor is a, a lot of these people, especially I think academics, are not used to writing in the sort of axios style where everything is, is compressed and very concise. There usually are articles are under 400 words, and they're not used to having that 
economy of, of words imposed upon their writing. And so I think there's a very symbiotic relationship that happens between a writer and and the editor there because you know obviously they have so much more expertise in in whatever area they're writing about but i think as someone who has some critical distance from whatever subject they're writing on you can pick apart you can sort of stand in for for the reader and try to pick up on okay what is the most concise version of the story what are the important parts that a reader has to know, because obviously these experts are so steeped in the issues that, that they really care about them. And, and we're trying to compress that in, in a way that is as respectful as possible of the writer. You're so polite and diplomatic. <laughs> what you're really saying is these people are pretty long-winded. <laughs> well, it's not. Oh, I mean, sometimes there are writers who are writing about, you know, an issue that is really, as most things are, incredibly complex and have a lot of nuance and, and there are a lot of contingencies and all these other factors involved. And even if they write in a very concise way where there's no where there's sort of no slack in the writing you still have to prioritize what are the most important bits for a general audience and i think that can be hard for for someone to do if they're so immersed in the issue so who is the audience for axios it tends to be people sort of across across different professional fields, whether they are in the private sector or in finance or if they're in government. And then I think we, we have a, a pretty broad audience of people who are just avid news consumers who want a way to be informed, but in a way that doesn't overload them with information, you know, to have someone who's picking out what's important for them to know. So in terms of, I guess, demographic, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here, mm -hmm. but how would you differentiate Axos from like BuzzFeed? I would say that in terms of BuzzFeed news, I would say that the demographics are probably not too hugely different in that they cater to, I would say, probably pretty highly educated professionals. I imagine BuzzFeed would probably skew a bit younger. I know that I think Axios has a pretty high read rate among older people who are further along in their careers and in different industries. I think it can be, at least with, with BuzzFeed News, I feel like older people who are not millennials may have some confusion about what BuzzFeed is, which I, I don't think people my age or, or a little bit older have the same sort of difficulty with parsing distinctions between news outlets that also offer editorial content as well. So yeah, I, I would say Axios probably skews a bit older, but mm -hmm. I, I would imagine that the demographics are fairly similar. One of the things that we discussed during the espresso shots was the fact that you, and we'll get into your time as an undergrad a little bit later, but that you studied French, you got a BA, and now you're editing a part of the Axios website, the content that focuses on international affairs. Mm -hmm. How do you prep for the stories that you're editing? Are you doing additional reading? Are you, you know, how are you getting yourself up to speed on these very, in some instances, fast moving stories? Right. So in some instances, if there are stories that are taking place in sort of a, they're sort of ambient stories, right? So I guess things like the Iran nuclear deal, right, which which has a, a pretty long history in, in terms of the daily news cycle. It's something that, that goes back many years. If it's things like that, I will definitely try to familiarize myself with the history. If there are individual 
events, it can be harder. I'm more reliant on the writer, especially if it's in an area of the world or if it's in a topic that I'm not as familiar with. So I guess an, an example of that would be like the economic crisis in Turkey. But in that way, it's interesting because your ignorance can sometimes be an asset insofar as you are standing in for a reader who may not know very much about it either. So chances are, if you are an editor at a publication working on, on world news, and if you don't know very much about it, probably a fair amount of readers also won't know necessarily much more than you do. So it can be useful in that way to sort of put pressure on, on the writer to say this is what needs explaining. And in that way, I think it can even be something of an asset. Obviously, you still have to be generally well-versed in world news. Absolutely. And as an editor, do you have a particular formula that you're following? How do you attack a piece that you're editing? Our pieces tend to, you know, I mean, there there is sort of a built-in formula with a lot of news or newsy stories, the upside down pyramid, which a lot of journalists will be familiar with where you sort of prioritize the most important information up top and then add the context below according to priority. So the first step is to get a handle on what, first of all, what the issue is. And then secondly, what the writer is trying to say, if it's not immediately evident, you sort of have to sift through the copy to find what the kernel of, of the story is. And then once you're there, you have to rejigger the piece to prioritize the information. And then you put in queries about where you think there could be some places that need flushing out or, or filling in or explanation. And so there is a back and forth with the writer where we try to sort of polish the, the piece. And that can take anywhere from sometimes half an hour to some pieces we work on for across several days. And how many pieces are you working on during any given day? I usually probably publish three to four pieces a day, and then there will be some that I'm working on for the next day. So yeah, I'd say, I'd say probably three to four. So Spencer, I alluded to your time at undergrad. Let us now flash back all the way to 2016, 2017, <laughs> when you were an undergrad at Yale and you majored in French. Did you know what you were going to do with French when you graduated? Yeah, it's, it's funny because I think I knew that I wasn't really going to do anything with my French degree. For background, I, I came in to Yale thinking I was going to be a chemistry major, interestingly. Oh my uh, goodness. Yeah, so I took freshman organic chemistry my freshman year, immediately realized that I didn't like it. I think a lot of my fondness for chemistry was because of my high school experience with my high school chemistry teacher. She was a, a really great teacher and, and I had a lot of fascination with it. But once I, I got to Yale, I was taking chemistry and I was also taking French classes because I had taken French in, in high school and you have to take a language class anyway. And I really didn't enjoy my chemistry experience. It was, it was mostly pre-meds and I was not going to become a doctor. And I realized that I didn't really have much interest in becoming a researcher either. My interest in chemistry was sort of more abstract, I guess, than practical or mm -hmm. career-wise. And I was taking French at the same time. And the French department at Yale is really excellent. And I was really enjoying my classes that I was taking freshman year. And I decided that it would be kind of a good plan to major in French because the requirements were not super stringent. I could get credit toward my major by studying abroad during the summer, which I did my, my sophomore summer. And so I only have to take about 
one class per semester it ended up being in order to satisfy my major requirements. And that allowed me to take pretty much whatever else I wanted undergrad, which was really ended up being my my main desire was just to get as much exposure to different disciplines I was I was interested in. I think especially after high school, there's a lot of pressure to sort of figure out what you want to major in, in college. Everything sort of feels in high school a bit like a means to an end, the end being getting into college. And I was sort of tired of that mindset once I once I got there. I really wanted to I, I sort of made a conscious decision that I was going to try to enjoy my years in, in college by taking whatever I, I wanted, pretty much. So what um, did you friend, take? I took a lot of different classes. I took a fair amount of women's gender and sexuality studies. I took a couple African-American studies, history. And then there's a program, but not a major at Yale for journalism. It's called the Yale Journalism Initiative. So Yale is, is because it's a liberal arts school, it's pretty intent upon not having any of its undergrad programs be too pre-professional. So Yale wanted to avoid having a journalism major, but they still wanted to have a program that would give aspiring journalists sort of some tools and background to equip themselves to go into the field. So I did do do that program. And that involved taking journalism seminars. And I took also creative writing classes, as well as the program also required doing an internship and, and publishing as well. So I know, because I have your resume, that you were very active in internships and in some extracurriculars. Could you share with Java Junkies what you did? Yeah, absolutely. I, my extracurricular activities were sort of divided into two main strains. One was acapella, which is huge at Yale. It's kind of a cult. We joked that it's sort of the equivalent of like frat culture. <laughs> like there is a when you come to, to Yale as a freshman, there is a process for auditioning, which in, you know, more normal schools is probably just like, you know, you audition, you have a callback, you get in or you don't. At Yale, my freshman year it was a four week long process called Rush, like as in a Greek system where you not only audition, but you have meals with the with the groups, you have callbacks and there's there's all kinds of ridiculous activities. They have these things called singing desserts, where they throw these concerts for prospective group members, people are trying out to try to court them, that kind of thing. So I think I auditioned like five groups. And then my other big activity was journalism, which actually I, I didn't really start doing very much of until probably the end of my sophomore year, beginning of my junior year. So on top of taking classes I also worked at the, the long-form magazine at Yale, which is called The New Journal, which is actually not very new. It's, it's named after The New Journalism. So it was actually started in 1967. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not new. <laughs> yeah, which can be kind of a, a point of confusion. But that was a, a really great experience. It, I, I was always more interested in, in long-form journalism. And so I worked there first as a, a copy editor, which was great because I, I got to really study grammar, which which sounds so nerdy, but I think it's really important. And then uh, as a managing editor, so I was editing features and, and stories and that sort of thing. It's on your resume that you had the best audition for the Whiff and Poofs. This is the uh, acapella group. <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> the best audition of 2016. Do you remember what you sang for that audition? And could you share a few samples? Yeah, of it? I sang His Eyes on the Sparrow, which is a, a gospel song that I originally first encountered while watching Sister Act 2 as, as a child version with Lauren Hill. I'm trying to remember 
Uh, my God, how does it start? Oh, yes. Why should I feel discouraged? And why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and more? Oh, that was so beautiful. Sorry to subject your, your listeners to that. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? If I had one superpower that I could imbue, it would be the ability to sing. <laughs> so I am in awe of people like you, Spencer. I just love listening to The Voice and all of those shows because you're so talented. Yeah, thank you. No, those, those shows are definitely a lot of fun. So... When you graduated in May of 2017, what was your first job and how did you get it? First job was an internship at, at Harper's Magazine, not Harper's Bazaar, which the, the two often get confused. I think it actually was started by the, the same Harper family, but it's a, a very old publication. It dates back to, I want to say the 1850s. I think it published Herman Melville, so pretty old. And they have an internship program that I applied to, I want to say, in February or March. And I didn't really find out that it was going to be what I was doing once I graduated until probably April or so. And that was, I think, stressful because during senior year, a lot of people, if they're going into sort of more structured professions, they have their interviews in, in September and they get a job offer in October and they're set for the, the rest of the year. Whereas for a lot of people both for myself and, and the people I knew in writing programs and people who want to go into journalism, it was a lot less straightforward. So in my case, yeah, I, I didn't find out until maybe two months or maybe even a month before I graduated. And then six days after I graduated, I started the internship. And it was only a summer internship. So it was over pretty quickly. And then I had to find a new job. But so I, I spent three months there. It was unpaid. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in New Jersey. So I lived at home and, and commuted. But yeah, that, that was my first job. I also understand that you took a year off from college. Yeah, that was between junior and senior year. So that was for the Whip and Poos, which is the first college archipelago group in the, the country was founded in 1909. And because Yale is so ridiculous with the, the acapella culture, we have two senior groups, Women Rhythm, which was founded shortly after Yale went co-ed. I think it was founded in the 70s, uh, the Whip and Poos, which are all male. Although actually now they are no longer all male. That's uh, right. But when, yeah, but when I was there, they were still all male. So yeah, so uh, what happened with that is that I, when the Whip and Poos started out, it was sort of just like a pub like barbershop quartet almost. And over the years, it sort of became increasingly professional to the point where there was so much travel and so many concerts involved that people started taking a year off from school. So you auditioned in March of your junior year, and I took the next year off. So we sang that year 253 concerts, and that was in order to fund our touring schedule. And I think over the course of the year, we, we went to 27 countries. So it was, it was pretty much like being a, a professional musician for a year in a strange way. 
And you also organize part of that world tour. Yeah. So everyone in the group volunteers to help plan the final world tour, which is three months during the summer before you come back for your final year of school. Because every year has a business manager whose responsibility is to book the vast majority of the concerts. And it, it really is sort of like a full-time job. So the business manager books maybe like 200 concerts. And then because he was so busy doing that, everyone else in the group volunteers to or almost everyone volunteers to help plan part of the tour. So mine was two weeks in part of the European leg. So I did Paris, Le Mans, which is a, a town about two hours southwest of Paris, and then Vienna and Rome. How fabulous. That must have been the most unbelievable experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm very conscious that I will probably never be able to travel like that again. And I think that's part of the a huge reason of why I did it in the first place, because I, I was able to go to places for, you know, effectively free that I probably would never be able to go to otherwise. So it was, yeah, it was definitely a, a once in a lifetime experience. Spencer, as I look at the list of all the different internships that you have had, including, we should say, working as a prep cook in the Caliccio and Sons, is that restaurant? Yeah, it actually is no longer. It was owned by Tom Colicchio, who's the, the head judge on Top Chef. He closed it and opened a new restaurant. I'm forgetting what it's called. But yeah, it was a great restaurant. I, I know only because the on my first night working there, the, the chefs allowed me to taste some of the, the food that, that the guests would eat. But it was like a three-star New York Times read restaurant. And it was, it was a, another one of those experiences that I had where I was just sort of completely immersed in, in a different world. I was very grateful to, to have that experience. And you were able to use that experience as grist for mm -hmm. a piece that you wrote called From the Battlefield to Tom Colicchio's Kitchen, how have your various internships and working in the restaurant business and reviewing upcoming restaurants that you, I guess, reporting on for the Montclair magazine, how mm -hmm. do you think they helped position you for a job when you got out of school? Yeah, it's funny because I think in retrospect, it's very easy to sort of impose a, a sort of logic or, or narrative on, on how it works. But really, like during the, at the time, I really didn't have, you know, it, there, there wasn't much logic to it. When I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be a chef, which is why my freshman summer, I, I was freshman summer and in college, you know, a lot of people are, are doing their, their first internships. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew that I was no longer, I no longer wanted to major in chemistry. I still had this sort of holdover from high school where I thought I might want to be a chef or go to culinary school. And I thought that the only way I could find out is if I finally tried to work in a restaurant. And it got to a point where I was sort of so desperate for something to do during the summer that I just emailed six of like the best restaurants in, in New York, including like 11 Madison Park, which was kind of ridiculous, although they did respond very nicely. But um, so one of them was Felicio and Sons, and I just asked me if I could come help out. And, and they let me. And I found out very quickly that I did not want to work professionally as a cook, which, you know, sort of working by process of elimination is how a lot of my interests have matured thus far. But then I thought, okay, well, if I don't want to be a cook, maybe I'd be interested in food writing. So that's how I got involved with restaurant 
profiling in my hometown magazine. And that's also actually sort of the segue that got me to, you know, interested in journalism as, as a whole. My sophomore fall, there was a class called long form food writing that was being taught. It's, it's not usually taught. It was sort of a, a one off kind of class by a visiting professor who is a Burkhard Bilger, who is a, a wonderful writer for The New Yorker. And I thought, okay, well, I had just come away from the, the summer realizing that I didn't want to be a chemist. I didn't want to be a cook. Maybe I'd try food writing. And that class turned out to be much less about food in itself than about how to write feature-length journalistic profiles through the lens of food. But really, the, the food was sort of secondary. And that's really when I started thinking more about writing just in, in sort of broader terms as maybe something that I that I wanted to do, because it up until then, it hadn't really been a, a thought for me. And yeah, so from then on, it, sort of, it, it was this weird sort of zigzag path that, that I took to getting to realize what I wanted to do. And from then on, I just started taking more journalism classes and doing internships. And I think even up through my junior summer, when I did the internship. I did an internship at the American Society of Magazine Editors, where they placed you at, at, a, at a magazine. And I was at Inc. Magazine. And I remember during orientation, they asked people one by one, they're like, oh, is this, are you sure this is what you want to do? And everyone was sort of saying yes, because that's what you say. And I was like, ah, that's why I'm here. Like, I'm not sure. And it sort of like got like a negative reaction. But that was how I sort of established, you know, just by, I, I think, working in a field sort of disabuses you of, of any abstract notions you may have of it, which is what happened with cooking. And it's, it's also sort of what happened with writing, except I stuck with the writing because my experience in the industry ended up being something that I was satisfied with. And do you know if Axios, if when you interviewed for the job at Axios, those internships and other experiences mm -hmm. impressed them? I, I think probably to a degree... Internships and, and, and past experience, they do speak for themselves in some way. But I think almost more important is probably the way those experiences manifest in, in how you go moving forward, if, if that makes sense. So the, the first internship I had at ASME was what I think allowed me to get the, the internship at Harper's. And, and my internship at Harper's was partly what led to my stint later once I was out of Harper's at, at the Paris Review. So I think everything sort of builds on itself. But I, I think it's very difficult to point to one experience that is sort of, a, you know, as, as a nominal qualification for you to, to work at a place. I think it's, there's sort of a holistic view you have to take of everything. I, yeah. I don't think, yeah, I don't think that there's one internship that if you have, it will guarantee you a job. Actually, I think more importantly, the point that you were just making is that it helped you to, through the process of elimination, figure out what was the right fit for you. Right, exactly. And what wasn't. So kudos to you for putting yourself out there and trying different things. And what a great time of your life to be doing that. Yeah, college is definitely, I think, the best time to try to experiment with Things that even if it's just you have sort of an inkling that you might be interested in, I think it only gets harder as you leave college to make pivots. So, so definitely, I, I think it's it's a good idea to try to expose yourself to, to pretty much everything in college. I might say just as somebody who has a few more years <laughs> on you, I'm 54, uh -huh. and this is my fourth profession, you have plenty of time to be making pivots. You right. really do. I. 
I don't want to stress out Java junkies any more than they already are. Your 20s, certainly before if folks want to start families, that, right, that's right. definitely the time to be trying all this stuff out. So I think you, without maybe even realizing it, Spencer, saved yourself a lot of time in mm-hmm. your 20s because you did it in your teens. Right, right. For sure. So we're getting to the end of the interview here. And what I try to do with almost everyone I interview, Spencer, is to ask them about a time in their professional life. And let's include all your internships in there. When you really had to struggle to get through a bad patch, maybe you had a really challenging supervisor or the hours were terrible or you felt you were in over your head. For some of our older folks that I interview, they might have been fired. They might have whatever happened. But if you could share a story, if there is one, when you had to dig deep to get to the other side. Yeah, I'm I'm lucky in that I've never had any horror experiences with supervisors or anything like that. My, my hours have been fine. I, I would say that the hardest work experience I've had just sort of generally was definitely when I was a prep cook at, at Colicchio and Sons. Primarily, I would say because, I, and I say this all the time when, when people ask me about it, it it's, has the highest ratio of just sort of backbreaking work to pay of, of, I think, probably any industry. There were, you know, maybe not any industry, but it's definitely up there um, in that, you know, there, there were sous chefs at this restaurant who worked six days a week, worked, you know, like 15-hour days, and we're still living with like, you know, a, a ton of roommates getting paid very little. I think I remember reading a story that the starting salary for a line cook at Alinea, which is a three Michelin star restaurant in Chicago, I think it's still around, was like $24,000 a year. And so, you know, this is for someone who's working at the, the top of their field and you're still getting paid so little because the, the margins in, in the restaurant industry are so small and you're on your feet all day, you know, at least in journalism, you know, even if you are, if you're an editor, at least, and you're working in an office, at least there's air conditioning, your hours are pretty predictable. Whereas if you're a cook, you know, you work nights, you can't really see anyone you have to work on holidays, Thanksgiving, sometimes Christmas, that sort of thing. So there was that. And I, I think for me personally, I realized fairly quickly after a few weeks through the the summer that I was there, that it was not quite for me, the profession. I think I was, I was more interested in sort of cooking as either as, as a hobby that I was just really animated about and interested in, or cooking as the sort of fantasy that's presented by celebrity chefs and, and all of the various culinary media we, we consume that sort of paints a very rosy picture of cooking as an art form, which I think it is, but it also that can obscure how much how hard the work is for, for people working in the industry. And so I, I realized pretty quickly that it was not really what I wanted to do. And I think one day I had to peel or, or trim rather the uh, there's a sort of silvery skin on white asparagus, which is sort of, uh, it was considered something of a delicacy in France. It's far more tender than, than green asparagus. And we, and we had just gotten a, a shipment in. And so I had to peel the skins off them with a, with a paring knife. And I was doing that for, I had probably like five cartons of them. And I was just sort of being lethargic in, in my work. And one of the sous chefs like took me aside and was just saying, you know, we're all sort of cogs in this machine. Everyone needs to... And he did it very nicely, but he was just saying, you know, if you're feeling kind of 
lethargic, you know, just keep in mind that we all depend on each other to get the food out the way it needs to be. And it was a moment where I was in a position that I knew I didn't want to be in long term, but I, I had made a commitment for the summer to do this thing. And I was surrounded by people who were working harder than I was in that in that moment. And so it's just sort of a is a point where I had to just sort of suck it up. And, you know, I, I think just be conscious of the fact that this was not a profession that I had to be in. I had other options. In fact, that was something that pretty much every cook there told me when I when they found out that I was in college and then I was at uh, I was at Yale. They're like, why are you here? A lot of cooks will say they you should only go into the restaurant industry if it's the only thing you feel like you can do, either because of you know your opportunities are limited or it's because you are so wedded to the craft of it. And I did have other options and I was lucky enough to be able to try something out without, you know, being trapped in it. And so it's just sort of a moment where I had to take stock of the position I was in and that this was something that I, I had to really put my back into for the time that I was there because, you know, it wasn't permanent. And yeah, so that that was, I think that was probably the, the toughest experience I've had working. Mm-hmm. So final time for coffee question, Spencer, if you could go back and do college all over again, based on the wisdom that you have today, what advice would you give yourself? I think I said something to this effect before, but one thing that I really valued about going to liberal arts school is that it prevented me from thinking too much about what I was going to do immediately afterwards and how to gear my studies toward a profession. It was something that I struggled a lot with when I first got to Yale because again, when I, when I got there, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'd be a cook. And I was like, where are the like cooking classes? <laughs> um, or, you know, th- things like that. And I learned to embrace this sort of interdisciplinary and, and useless nature of a lot of academic studies. And I say that as a, as a positive, not a negative. College is, is one of the few places in life where you are where things don't have to sort of adhere to the logic of a market. You know, you can study things that are not useful or don't, don't make money in that sense. And so I wish that I had embraced that even more fully. I wish I had taken more literature classes. I probably, if I could go back, I probably would have double majored in English as well. I think there's probably, there was some ingrained tendency in me to try to pick things that I thought would be quote unquote useful in whatever way that I perceived. Yeah. So if I could go back, I, I think that's probably what I would do. I, I would just take more literature classes, literary theory, things that are, you know, that you that don't have, you don't have as much occasion to, to learn about later after you graduate. Although fortunately, one thing that I take solace in is that you can always read more books. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> you certainly can. Well, Spencer, thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the time for coffee community i really enjoyed talking with you of course thank you so much it was my pleasure thanks so much for listening to time for coffee where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24 7 no matter where you live I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.